Welcome to episode 251 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and I'm delighted that LA Times Book Prize and Anthony Award winner, as well as landing on former President Barack Obama's reading list, S.A. Cosby is joining the podcast to talk about his recently released All the Sinners Bleed, out now from Flatiron Books. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, recently, I saw you and Jordan Harper at Romans in Pasadena, California, talking about All the Sinners Bleed. And between the two of you, it was like a crime fiction conversation for the ages. So I hope you'll bear with me. I'm a tad intimidated. But once again, thank you for joining me. Oh, no worries. And, and please don't be intimidated. Uh, I am uh, I am just a regular person who doesn't put the top back on the peanut butter as often as I should. So don't don't feel intimidated at all. All right. Well, that's a that's a worthy club. <laughs> uh, one of the many things you and Jordan talked about was the central characters of your novels, of which you have four so far, at least. And they've all been men who have faced moral challenges. Uh, but the men in Blacktop Wasteland and Razorblade Tears have been outside the law. Uh, in All the Sinners Bleed, Titus Crown is the sheriff. He's a black former FBI agent who ran for and won in uh, Sharon County. And please correct me if I've mispronounced it, uh, mm -hmm. Virginia. And so of that fact, Titus thinks, the moment he announced his candidacy, he had made a choice to live in a no man's land between people who believed in him, people who hated him because of his skin color, and people who believed he was a traitor to his race. That, I think, is Titus's moral dilemma number one. Yeah, I definitely think so. Uh, I believe that Titus, um, for all his faults, he's a human being, obviously. Um, but he genu he genuinely wants to do better for his town, for the people of his town. But he's also astute enough to realize that once he puts that badge on for a certain segment of society, he's the, the boogeyman. He's the scary, you know, black man with a badge for uh, for some members of his community, members who typically are uh, Confederate apologists. But for other members of his community, um, the community he comes from. The black community, he is now seen as someone to be wary of, someone to not be trusted um, because he's wearing all the historical connotations, good and bad, that go along with that. And so for me, um, creating that situation for Titus was just one brick in the house that I was trying to build about him, about his, his strength and his moral, but also the complexity and the, and, the, and the nuance that comes with living and making that choice to be a, a police officer, a black person South. So yeah, that definitely was uh, one of the major conflicts that I wanted to give him. Um, and we'll, we'll, get, we'll circle back to that in a second, but I wanted to talk early in the book um, before he actually sees the evil that the murder victim, Jeff Spearman was involved in, you wrote, and I'm just gonna quote you because Everything you said is much better than anything I would say. <laughs> I just didn't have the heart to tell Darlene, who is his current love interest. Titus didn't have the heart to tell Darlene that no one told anyone all their secrets. Even the people we loved kept pieces of themselves hidden from the light. 
And when Titus finds those pieces in the form of photos on Spearman's phone, all hell breaks loose, and that's literally and figuratively. And Titus tells his deputies, uh, when asked you know, how he deals with this sort of thing, Titus tells his deputies he tries not to dream. But, Sean, you have to dream. So what did it take to build a story with such an evil-soaked crime, you know, the torture and death of young Black boys and girls? And did you dream, and how disturbing was it? So I had a very interesting conversation last year, and I, men- I mentioned it during my conversation with Jordan, where I got to meet one of my writing heroes, uh, Dennis Lehane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, Lehane is on the Mount Rushmore with Sue Grafton and uh, Elmo. And 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 uh and he's just if you're a writer of a certain age he he's the guy as we like to say he's he's the guy and so got talking to him last year at Bouchercon and he said something very interesting to me he said you know I don't know how many more novels I have in me because I don't really like going to those dark places that I have to go to and I remember saying to Jordan uh at our uh, at our event. I don't know what that says about me because I'm not bothered by going to those dark places. I can write really horrific things and then go play with my cat or go to the gym. It doesn't affect me the same way. That being said, I don't, that doesn't mean that I don't give those subjects or those issues that do deference. Uh, I take them very seriously. Um, I think for me, the, the way I'm able to write those dark scenes or those dark subject, that dark subject matter is I know that my hero is going to face it at some point during the book. See, you know, in real life, we see these horrible events, horrible things, and many times people get away or they get away with it or they're not punished as severely as they should be. And so as the writer, I can make sure that at least some people face justice. And for me, that also helped to create Titus because I think your hero is only as good or as in, in, impressive as the evil he or she overcomes and ultimately triumphs over. And so for me growing up, uh, I was a kid at the time that the, uh, the Atlanta child murders were happening. And I remember the sense of panic that overwhelmed, not just the South, but the country as this took place and, and what that felt like and what it felt like to realize someone would murder you just because of what you look like. And, you know, of course, this was the early days of, of, of profiling and behavioral science and, uh, and all that. But there was this intrinsic fear of just this boogeyman, this monster that existed in the shadows. And I thought when I was writing this book, I wanted to replicate that feeling in a way so that you see what the stakes are. The higher the stakes, the greater the triumph. And so I definitely wanted to give Titus... Um, the, the highest stakes possible. Well, what, you know, as as I mentioned before, you're you're uh, from Virginia, and uh, this book takes place in a mythical county, Sharon County in Virginia, southeastern Virginia. And so, about Sharon, there are 23 churches there, and uh, this is a jurisdiction where faith and religion, which are not necessarily the same thing, line every street. And Titus is already a black sheriff, but he's also a non-believer who doesn't make a secret of being a non-believer. And so this is not exactly how to win friends and influence people territory for a <laughs> southerner in an elected position. 
And to me, this was a man who, who has his moral core, but in a way can't win for trying. So mm -hmm. that's another aspect of, of Titus and, and his relationship with his county, which he loves, and his friends and his family, whom he loves. Uh, and yet he can't be a hypocrite. That's, I think, one of his, his uh, I wouldn't say a failing. I think that's one of his quirks that he just cannot abide hypocrisy. And I think if you were to ask Titus, like, does he think he can win again? Probably not. I, and I think I mentioned that a couple of times in the book. So he doesn't think he's going to win another term or his brother even says to him, you know, you know, they're not going <laughs> to let you again. And so for Titus, that gives him a little bit of freedom. You know, he. He, he tells himself, you know, I have four years to make as much change as possible. Yeah, that's right. He's, he, he has a vision and he has this moral compass. And he is like all good lawmen and women in crime fiction, especially crime fiction of the current day. There is a moral ambiguity. And, you know, crime fiction, uh, especially this is a procedural the, um, the the law person knows criminals. It comes with the bargain, mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> and I think that that Titus has a very measured and uh, appropriate, realistic vision of uh, the people with whom he does business, which are criminals. Yeah. I definitely think Titus is more sympathetic than, say, some other, you know, uh, fictional uh, lawmen and women. I think because he knows the town so well. And there's a difference between Jasper, who runs the local bar, who may or may not be the local drug kingpin, and someone like Darnell Posey, who's a character who pops up, who has gone through a lot of things in life, who's had made some poor choices. And I think Titus's great gift is discernment. He can discern, you know, the true villains from the victims or the true villains from the people who have made just poor choices. I think having a law, a person, a, a detective, a, a police officer or what have you with empathy, I think that makes the story more impactful um, in the long run. You know, I grew up reading Raymond Chandler and uh, um, you know, Mickey Spillane and, and Ross McDonald, Esther Himes and, and folks like that. And a lot of times those detectives, like we don't know a lot about Philip Marlowe's internal life. We don't know a lot about his inner monologue. Um, I don't think you really get to see that until Ross McDonald, who really started giving the detective a moral perspective. You know, with Raymond Chandler, with Dashiell Hammett, the detective is just, well, you committed a crime, so I got to take you in. Even, that There's a famous scene in um, in uh, the Maltese Falcon where Dashiell Hammett's main character, Sam Spade, realizes who the murderer is. And even though he has a personal relationship, he doesn't give that person any quarter. It's like, well, you, you, you know, you've a law dame, and now I got to call the cops. And so with, when you see Ross McDonald, when you see writers like that uh john d mcdonald did this as well you start to see this with walter mosley where the detective is not so much this upright paragon of moral turpitude but he's more or she's more um a greek horse who sort of comments on society and the and not so much trying to restore 
man's order, but trying to store a universal order. I think if you ask Titus in All Sinners Bleed, what he's trying to do is not so much just obey the laws of the state or the county, but he wants to do what's right. Um, you know, uh, when I was writing this book, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who used to be a practicing minister, who's not anymore. Um, uh, he's still an activist, but he just, he doesn't, uh, he's not a practicing minister anymore. And the thing that he said to me that stuck with me, we were having a conversation and he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, the thing that bothered me the most when I was a minister is that I felt like we were too caught up in the materialism of Christianity and not the actual mission, which is to deal and save and help the least of us. And that stuck with me. And so when I created Titus, I really wanted a character who is trying his best to follow man's rules, but also do what's right and look out for the least of us. And I think with Titus, um, the thing that Titus makes Titus different from, say, Bug and Blacktown Wasteland or Ike and Buddy Lee and Raised by Tears is Ike and Buddy Lee or Bug, uh, uh, um, they are men who have really, they have really Im- have been swallowed up by the worst aspects of society. You know, you can call them criminals and they are, they are criminals, but in some ways they didn't have a choice, you know, and some ways they were forced into it. And then anybody that reads Black Top Wasteland, we'll see what I'm talking about with Bug and, and with Ike and, and Buddy Lee, the, the choices that they made. Yeah, they had choices, but not great ones. With Titus, he is very, he's very, he acknowledges that, you know, he's had a better life. He got to go to UVA. He became an FBI agent. And so he has had certain blessings in his life and he feels this this duty to help people and i thought it was interesting to create a character like that who works within as much of the rules as is possible as opposed to say someone like i could but he leave to ride around town and, and just break people's fingers titus actually he's trying his best to do what's right by everybody and that makes it difficult well, it's it's interesting you you mentioned Ross McDonald in my own personal crime fiction uh, experience. Uh, I tell people that I I got into the zebra stripe hearse and I never got out. <laughs> One of my uh, favorite books. I love. Oh, just yeah. Um, and you touched on on the ministry and you touched on uh, you know men who preach and some of the story's most compelling characters are Sharon's religious leaders. In fact, the title of the book comes from Elias Hillington at the Holy Rock Church. And after Elias misquotes the Bible while feeding the church's snakes, which is like one of the most brilliant scenes I've ever seen written, (laughs) uh, Titus corrects him. And this is what she wrote. He had that befuddled look most self-righteous people get when someone they considered a heathen could quote the Bible more accurately than they could. Elias responds that only the sinners bleed. And it just had to be one of the tensest scenes I'd ever read in crime fiction. I mean, it was Stephen King-esque intention. So. Oh gosh, thank you so much. I I am very honored that you would say that. Yeah, that scene is very tense. Uh, the, the title comes from that scene because what what Hillington is saying that, oh, well, you know, I'm perfect. My people are perfect. We don't bleed. We're all sinners. We all bleed. And so that's why, I, you know, the book is titled All the Sinners Bleed. Um, and I think that's that's the scene where you, you see Titus's, uh, Titus's moral center, you know, where he just cannot abide hypocrisy. He can't abide people being 
And when he stands up to Hillington, and I, one of my favorite lines is in that scene where Hillington has this the snake and the snake is like raising his head and looking around. And Titus says to Hillington, he says, look, I didn't, I didn't come here to pass no judgment on you. But if you let that snake, snake go, I'm going to send him to hell on a bullet. And um, <laughs> I, I, I actually, I, I actually have that one written down too. That's a great line. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that Titus is a very sensitive, a very em, 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 empathetic person. But like all good characters in crime fiction, male or female or what have you, he's not to be crossed, you know. And so he's not someone, as uh, the great uh, quote John uh, John Wayne says in The Shooters, I'm not to be trifled with. So I love showing that. But I also love showing, you know, the you would think in that situation, the man of God. And the and the man of, of man's law would be you know they would support the the more the more spiritual uh, character, but Titus in that moment I think is more of a man of God than the minister is, and uh, I I just I, I just really wanted that to come through when you see him when he confronts the darkness the evil that is trying to take over his town you know he's that he's that person that stands up you know and and there was a TV show years ago called True Detective. Oh, yeah. I'm starring starring Matthew McConaughey and uh, Woody Harrelson. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine who had had a conversation with that show's creator, Nick Pizzolato. And Nick has this great line about Rust and Marty, where he says about Rust and Marty, he said, look, you know, they're not great guys. But when the darkness arose, they did not avert their eyes. They stood, you know, between the darkness and the light. And I just love the imagery of that. I love the idea of someone pulling themselves together and saying, okay, nobody else is going to stand up. I'm going to be one to stand up. And uh, I really, really just sort of have that, um, that sort of mythic quality about him, you know, uh, uh, that he's the sheriff, he's this person, regardless of whether or not he's wearing the badge, he's the person that's going to stand up and stand between the darkness and the light. Um, and, uh, I, I'm so just honored the way people have connected with him and the book in general. Well, your books, like all great crime fiction books, is not without humor because Titus does point out to Elias that the snake he's handling isn't poisonous. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> A lot of subtle humor in the book, I thought. Uh, I love Titus's relationship with his father. Uh, I love his relationship with his brother. Where they can actually... Somebody pointed this out to me, and I thought it was so interesting. So a friend of mine who read an early draft of the book, she said, uh, Nikki Dolson, who's a great writer in her own right. And she said, you know, I noticed the only time Titus really laughs is when he's talking to his brother, when he's talking to his father. And that wasn't a conscious decision on my point. That was subconsciously my inner muse was doing that. That I think those times are when Titus can take off the mantle of the sheriff. He can take off the mantle of the hero so to speak, and can just be himself with his dad and his brother and a very nice plate of uh, Southern cuisine and maybe some sweet tea. Uh, and I think that's the times as a writer, I feel he's most comfortable. He's most happy is when he's spending time with his dad and his brother and sitting around talking about the old days. And I, I love that for him. I love that he's not just an automaton, you know, that he does have feelings and emotions and, and, you know, he's not perfect. He's made some mistakes. I think he's uh, as careful with uh, his girlfriend's heart as he should be. Not because he's a bad man, but 
as somebody says to him early in the book, he's, he makes a good boyfriend, but a horrible uh, a partner. And so he he has some work that he needs to do on himself. But at the end of the day, he doesn't stand for anything except the truth. You know, he has a line in the book where he says, the truth is always in season, you know. And sometimes people tell you the truth are not the people that you want to hear it from. And so I think that's sort of Titus's lot, too. We are all works in progress. Yes. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So I'm an English-speaking Canadian from Quebec. And I get uh, being I get being from a place that everyone thinks they know about after they've read Louise <laughs> Penny book. And it mm-hmm, promised mm-hmm. you spoke eloquently about the South and how little people understand it. And I agree. I love to read Garden and Gun. I've been an avid reader of Southern fiction from William Faulkner to David Joy and you. I've been given flashes of the South. But it's like looking through a prism, you know, everything is refracted. And so mm-hmm. how, So I don't claim to know much. I've been a number of times. I've never lived there. Um, but I've been given these flashes of the South. And, and I wanted to know, how do you approach writing about the South, which is so complicated, as all regions are, in a way that makes us Northerners, and in my case, way Northerner, Uh, to just get a glimmer of understanding of this complexity. Like you said, the Confederate apologists and the people that want to make uh, the South better. And not only that, but, but like any region or, you know, I I talked to Sebastian Rotella about this once that, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, the the world of the Hispanic immigrant (laughs) is mm-hmm. multifaceted. You have Cuban Americans, mm-hmm. Mexican Americans, Puerto Rican Americans. Mm-hmm. It's not uniform. So with that little tiny little morsel, let's explain. For me, the first thing I do when I want to talk about the South is I talk about it from perspective of nine-year-old me. I grew up in a farmhouse with his grandparents, his grandmother's grandfather's uncle his aunts living as we say across the yard right next door who climbed magnolia trees and hung out on the wood pile where my grandfather got uh wood for the wood stove who swam in creeks who you know went to uh after after church sunday dinners with neighbors who learned manners at those dinners outside in start with the outside fork work your way in um the, the, i talk about the south through that kid's eyes because that kid he has the unabashed love of where he comes from and then i start looking at it through the eyes of a soon-to-be 50 year old who has traveled around the country has had opportunity to go around the world and then come back and really report on what makes the south unique what i love about it and what are the things that i wish i could change about it um, I say this in every interview, but I am a son of the South. I love the South. I love where I come from. I love the people I grew up with. There, there are adventures and there are experiences that I had in the South that you can't have anywhere else. That being said, to paraphrase James Baldwin, who he was talking about the United States, because I love the South, I reserve the right to criticize it because I know it can be better than what it is. And for every Southerner who is trying to make things better, for every Southerner who wants to give you the full view of the South, which is Black Southerners and white Southerners and indigenous Southerners, Hispanic Southerners, a strong Jewish 
uh, citizenry that exists, especially in the deep South in Alabama, Georgia, places like that. Um, the idea of the South as both uh, a, a haven and a hostile environment for LGBTQ uh, individuals. You know, some of the greatest Southern writers, one of the greatest Southern writers in the world, Tennessee Williams was a gay man. And so I look at the South through the eyes of both that child and this adult, and somewhere in the middle is the truth of a place that I love unabashedly and unironically, but a place that I'm also very honest about. Um, but the thing that drives me more than anything else is I really wanna show people that the South does not just belong to one set of people, to one demographic. Um, it is the, you know, the South is the birthplace of America in many ways. It's the birthplace of America's original sin. You know, the, the blood and, and the pain is seeped into this ground, into this earth, but also is the joy and the exuberance. You know, the South gives us, you know, the horrors of slavery, but the South gives us the blues. The South can give us horrible individuals like Nathan Bedward Forrest or Bull Connor, but the South can give us Ernest J. Gaines and William Faulkner. And so I think for me as a son of the South, as a Southern writer, it is always my job to tell an interesting story, but tell an interesting story that is in many ways a love letter to the place I come from. And uh, and I understand why people will tell you. A lot of times you'll see people say, oh, you got to get out of the South. The South is terrible. And this, But if we all leave, then nobody's here to change it. Nobody's here to do the good, to fight the good fight. And I'm definitely, if nothing else, stubborn. And so I'm definitely here to fight that good fight. And I think, you know, I will say this, I'll tell you this. I had a, a gentleman, I was in Milwaukee. I did a book tour recently. And I was in Milwaukee and an older gentleman said he was like 63, 64. A white gentleman came up to me. He says, you know, I'm originally from uh, Mobile, Alabama. He says, I read your books and I understand those people. And I understand that region in a way I haven't uh, felt close to in a book in years. And he says, I thank you for that. And um, I only say that because I think that's the duty of a writer. You know, if if I can take that my work and show a Southerner, that yes, we have a lot in common, but also show a Northerner, in your case, a far Northerner, that there is a beauty here. You know, there is a beauty in this place if you're brave enough or foolish enough to look for it. And I've, I've been both. I've been brave and I've been foolish. And uh, I just feel like it's my... Uh, my gift and my honor and my duty to talk about the place that I come from because I love it more than any other place in the world. David Joy uh, quoted uh, George Sanders uh, line to me once that fiction is the training wheels of empathy. And uh, I think that that's so true and very true in your books. So. Well, thank you. I definitely believe it. I think, I think people always ask me, they're like, why do you write crime fiction? You know, what is it about, crime fiction that draws you in. Um, to me, crime fiction is the gospel of the dispossessed because there's great books that have been written, great books that I've read, but not everybody can connect with those books. Like I may read something by Philip Roth and I may not connect with being, you know, an upper crust professor at a, at a prestigious Northeastern university, but I can identify with being desperate and I can identify with having a secret. And so I may read Jane Smiley and I may not be a, a farm a thousand acres in uh, in Nebraska, but I understand about pain. I understand about family expectations. And so for me, all novels are crime fiction because all novels talk about those, those real intrinsic human qualities. And the best crime novels, say, for instance, Dennis Lehane, uh, uh, Doctors Take My Hand or... Uh, 
Devil in a Blue Dress or They Shoot Horses, Don't They, or anything by Jim Thompson. Those novels really, really distill that human experience down to its its finest, most digestible um, morsel. And uh, I just am trying to uh, follow the uh, traditions of those great writers. Uh, this is, I'm getting to like the sort of the core of what I wanted to talk to you, Sean Cosby, about specifically. Um, and that's redemption. I once attended a session on noir fiction at the LA Times Book Festival ages and ages ago, probably before you were born. And one of the writers, <laughs> and for the life of me, I can't remember who, mentioned that no matter what the plot or the cast of characters, an essential element of noir fiction was redemption, specifically, but not wholly seeking it. And redemption is redolent in all of your books, and especially so in All the Sinners Bleed. Titus is on the road to redemption, and it's not a smooth mm -hmm. and straight one. Um, he's, he's just weighed down by Dickensian chains of guilt. Um, so is it fair to say that redemption, emotional, personal, and professional, uh, is high on the list of what he seeks? Or am I just reading way too much into it? Oh, no, no, it's there. It's definitely there. I, I think I talked about redemption. I'm fascinated with redemption a lot. I'm fascinated with the idea of when we make mistakes, what do we do to correct them? And how do we change? And who can we change? I think I asked that question in Blacktop Wasteland, can we change? And then mm -hmm. I think in Razorblade, I asked, what does it look like? when you change what does real change look like you know I, I came up with this idea that redemption is not a gift that someone else gives you redemption is like somebody giving you a 2000 piece jigsaw puzzle that depicts the snow scene and you had put it together by yourself nobody else in is going to benefit from you in the dark yeah nobody else is going to benefit from you putting that puzzle together it's the idea of finishing that puzzle and specific than being lauded in public for doing good works. You know, it's the work that you have to do on yourself. And for Titus, it's almost like if you would ask someone like his brother, they would tell you he's too hard. Um, but for Titus, that's the only way he knows how to live. Uh, hopefully, what people will take from the book but at the end, besides hopefully being a good mystery and a fast-paced and suspenseful thriller, is the story of a man who has found a new path to redemption, a new way to go about it. And seek to hold himself down with the millstones of the past, but seeks to sort of float and buoy himself um, on the river moving in the future. And I, I hope that's what happened to Titus. I want that for him because, you know, I, I wouldn't say he's my favorite character, but, you know, I had, I, and somebody asked me this, who's my favorite character in a, in a, in a thing, at a book thing the other day. And I said, you know, I look at my characters two ways. Are they characters, are they people I would have a beer with when I hang out with them? Or are they people I would call when I'm in trouble? And say, for instance, like Bug, I think I would call Bug if, it's on, if I was in trouble. I don't know if I would hang out with Bug. Bug reminds me a lot of some of my, some people I knew growing up who were always fun to be around until it's not funny. Right. Um, but but with Titus, I think I could have a beer with Titus and I would call him the father of trouble. I don't think me and Titus agree on the same things politically as much as people would think. I think Titus is a little more optimistic than I am. I think I'm a little more pessimistic. But at the end of the day, I think Titus 
is a good person, you know, and, and I think he is has less he doesn't have as far to go to be redeemed as he thinks as Bug, who is not a good person, but has a great following because I said that on social media one day that he wasn't a good person and several people got upset with me. They took a they took offense to that. Um, but I thought with Titus, I just thought I wanted to see what it looked like when someone does find that new path to redemption. They do seek and find a new way to redeem themselves and maybe let go of the past. Um, and again, you're not doing that for anybody but yourself. Redemption is not a celebratory event. Redemption is is sort of redemption is 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 being an adult, is growing up, you know. And I think it took me a long time to grow up. I was uh, I probably was a stunted, or not stunted, had an extended adolescence, as a lot of young men do. Um, but I think when you realize and you finally come to that point there's no turning back there's no going back you you've you've grown and you've changed did it for yourself you didn't do it for anybody else and i think that's the most powerful persistent and permanent change is when you change for you not because you want this woman or this man not because you want this job or this this position but you've changed and you have knowledge what you did wrong for you so that you can sleep at night and i think for titus poor guy I hope by the end of the book, he finally gets a full night's sleep. That's sort of a running joke to the book that he doesn't get a lot of sleep. So, <laughs> and I, I'm excited to see what you know new writers come up with. For I'm a huge crime fiction fan, as well as being someone who writes crime fiction. So, like I said, I was pretty talking about the writers that I loved as a kid. Um, there's writers now that I really love. I think they're doing interesting things with crime and crime fiction. Katrina McPherson, uh, Kelly Garrett. Uh, Eli Craner, as I spoke, I mentioned Jordan Harper earlier. Jordan Harper is probably one of the, uh, Jordan is in top three of crime. Oh, yeah, he's, she rides shotgun is, it it, it is so surprising. Jordan is great. Uh, uh, There's some other writers that I really enjoy. Uh, There's a writer named Laura McHugh. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Jennifer Hillier, who I think is one of the underrated thriller writers working today so you know, i've talked to her too i've talked to her too i uh, love her work another canadian that's my buddy yeah that's my pal we have whenever she comes to the states for like thriller fest or something we always get to hang out I, I am i am in awe of her as a writer um she does things that i think people take for granted that are very risky when you're writing thrillers she writes complicated uh characters complicated women characters who don't apologize for their agency and i think that's incredible i think that's great so um yeah i'm I'm always looking forward i mean it doesn't mean you can't look back to the past every once in a while i reread every every halloween i reread darkness take my hand and every spring i reread light in august um just because those are books that i look at that are the pinnacle of the things that i like and uh and so there's nothing wrong with like visiting the past once in a while but like as you said we'd probably get on the train and go forward so so my, uh, you've actually anticipated my last question, which is usually asking a writer about what's next. But as at least as of last month, when I heard you at Romans, uh, you mentioned that you were planning on taking a break. So I'm going to ask, because I'm also a writer, uh, what does a writer do on vacation? I write. Um, <laughs> but maybe more importantly, what does a writer read on vacation? So share your vacation reading list you know uh, next fall it'll be you know when i see you at bausher it'll be what did you do last summer what did you read last summer 
I will tell you, because I had the one thing about being a writer on vacation is that I am catching up on reading and some stuff that I miss, um, some stuff that uh, I wish I had read earlier. One of the most recent things I'm almost done with it is Beware the Woman by Megan Abbott. I love Megan. I think, again, I don't think she's underrated. I just think people don't know. There's a difference between being underrated, sort of being under the radar. And then also there's a there's in between that and people not really getting just how good you are. Like, and to use a sports analogy, you know, I think people took the boxer Floyd Mayweather for granted. He, he won 50 fights. He hasn't been defeated. And I think at some point people just forgot how difficult it was to do what he did. I think when Megan, I think people just take for granted how good she is and how she's operating at such a high level, both thematically, narratively. Um, she is really pushing the envelope with what a thriller can be. Um, so I'm almost done with Beware the Woman. I am reading a non um uh, a non-crime novel called The Late Americans by Brandon Tyler, uh Taylor, excuse me, Brandon Taylor, uh, about some uh post-graduate students at a fictional Iowa college, uh, which I think he has a lot in common with Jane Smiley when it comes to the deconstructing the what I like to say is the the lighter side of academia. Um, and I'm planning on starting um, before the end of the year, hopefully before I have to start writing again. Um, there's a really interesting uh, book. Uh, good for it here. It's in my queue. <laughs> it is in my queue. I'm so sorry. Uh, there's a book uh, called, called Somebody's Daughter. It's a memoir. Uh, by Ashley C. Ford. Um, and I'm looking forward to starting that. I love Ashley C. Ford. I think she's an incredible writer. Um, I also, now I read this earlier this year, but I, it bears mentioning again. Um, I, I spoke about Dennis Lehane earlier. Mm -hmm. And I was very blessed to read an early version of Small Mercies. And I also read the final draft when it came out. And if that is his last novel for a while, and he went out with a bang. Again, I think Dennis is one of those people that we don't appreciate just how good he is now um, because he makes it so effortless. He looks, makes it look so effortlessly done. And uh, Small Mercies is just, I, I think for me, the thing outside of the crime, which is interesting, and the the, the gangsters, which are always interesting. He, he comes up with the best characters maybe. I think that may have something to do with the intrinsic nature of Boston itself. But the thing that really struck me with it is a, a, a writer struggling with the rose-colored glasses of nostalgia. You know, it would be very easy for Dennis Lehane to look back at the 1970s in Boston and just think about playing stickball and buying chewing gum and, you know, going across the, uh, the Manchester Bridge from Southie in, you know, across the Mystic River. But he doesn't do that. He's very brutally, frankly, honest about the people and the area he grew up in and the differences and the similarities and what they they should not be, uh, what they should be lauded for and what they should be held accountable for. Uh, and so those are the books that I've either read or am reading now. Um, that being said, I'm doing a little writing. I said I wouldn't, but it's like, <laughs> I, can't, I can't help myself. <laughs> so I've been kind of, uh, this this real quick. Uh, so this is sort of my uh, the way I write. I write usually. I tell myself I, I write a synopsis for myself, and then what I do, which is very weird, 
Um, <laughs> I am very visually driven. So uh, before, now you have Pinterest, but before Pinterest, I would just Google images of scenes I wanted to write about. And if I wanted to write about a, you know, economically depressed town, I would pull up scenes and it would be black and white photos. If I want to write about three characters sitting around a kitchen table, I'll pull up images of that and I'll write and tell myself little stories, little vignettes. And then what I do is when I'm ready to start the book, I compile those little vignettes. I see what sticks, what worked, what didn't. It's sort of like me testing out, it's like a comedian testing out material. And then I'll start to put the story together. Uh, and so I've been doing that with my next uh, book, which is uh, tentatively titled um, King of Ashes, which is about three siblings who own a crematory together. One of the siblings uh, lives out of town. The other two live here in Virginia. And at the beginning of the book, there's been a tragic accident and their father is injured. And so he comes home to help and finds out uh, that his youngest sibling, his young brother, is in debt to some local criminals for a very large amount of money. And so the oldest brother tries to figure a way out um, while saving the business. But also this family has a, uh, a dark secret that's hung over their head for a number of years. When they were teenagers, their mother disappeared under uh, inauspicious circumstances. And everyone in town thinks their father killed her because she was having an affair and everybody knew about it. Uh, that may or may not be the case. Uh, I don't want to give anything away, but uh, so that, that's the book I'm working on now. These three siblings and their relationship and and how uh, I'm fascinated with the idea of finding one's purpose. Right. Mm -hmm. And what does that look like? when Maybe your purpose isn't something that's beneficial to society. You know, um, I call it the uh, the Michael Corleone effect, you know, uh, mm -hmm. find out. I'm really good at being a crime boss. And what does that look like and what does that mean? So that's what I want to investigate with my next book. But that's a little ways down the road. I am still taking vacation. I am catching up on movies. I, I went to see three movies this week. I'm a big cinephile. Um, getting back in the gym. Uh, I was on tour for a month, so I have to do that. Uh, trying to win over my cat who is upset with me because I gave him a flea treatment earlier this month and he is still holding a grudge. <laughs> so that might be my, forever. Uh, my that might be forever. <laughs> my reading and writing vacation uh, notes. I hope not. I love that little that little rascal. And, uh, <laughs> he's he's slowly coming around. He's he's slowly. He hasn't gotten back in my lap yet. He's still holding a grudge. Like every time he looks at me, it's like I can hear his thoughts. Oh, the betrayal! But um, you know, it's for his own good. But so those are my non uh, my non writing vacation. Uh, activities and and uh, and, uh, and uh, interesting things, side notes that I kind of do until I really once I get back into actually writing the book again, it's like I do sort of sink into sort of this special place and um, it's sort of to get me out of it. But uh, I like it. I like telling stories, and I've been very blessed that people have connected with them. I wanted to thank you, Sean, so much for talking to me and taking a break from from your break. I know that you were on a very long <laughs> tour, and I got a chance to see you. I think at the tail end of it, and uh, you didn't look in the least bit tired. You looked like you were enjoying <laughs> yourself. So I appreciate that. Uh, all the and all the people that came to see you seem to appreciate that as well. And and. Uh, it's so it's also good in the post-pandemic world to be able to do that again so it is very nice to be able to see people thank you for coming out thank you for having me tonight today i really enjoyed as you, you can 
tell anybody that knows me or anybody who's spending time with me in the bar at any Ram uh, very convention knows I love to talk about writing. Uh, and so this is a true pleasure for me. So thank you so much. <laughs>